prefatory note, I began to write in the pro-life cause in 1972 before Roe versus Wade, and I lament the friends like Mike Ullman and Nino Scalia, who didn't live to see this day with that decision overruled. But the question is, did that overruling in Dobbs really pronounce and reach the wrong that we had worked so hard to undo? And did that decision really lay the groundwork for our jurisprudence going forward? Abraham Lincoln used to invoke Senator Pettit of Indiana, who proclaimed that the self-evident truth of the Declaration of Independence was a self-evident lie. Here was a man elevated to high office in a republic, found on the premise that all men are created equal, that no man is by nature the ruler of other men in the way men must be the rulers of dogs and horses, and he expressed a contempt for the deep premises that underlie his own authority. Well, if that could be done by someone in Congress, why couldn't it be done as well by people in judicial office? And in fact, over the last 40 years, the judges have been altering our understanding of just who counts as that human person who's the subject of the law and the bearer of rights. The question, said Lincoln in his own day, is, is that black man not or is a human being? If he is not a human being, then he who is a human being may do with him what he pleases. But if he is a human being, he too has this natural right to govern himself. Harry Jaffa would say later that question of whether the black man is a man cannot be a value judgment. Value judgment is a term that came into play with Nietzsche and Max Weber. We stopped, people lost their confidence about speaking of moral truths. We would impute moral worth to things as we valued them. So would we, would we say that the standing of the black man depended on then on whether the, these people in the states cared enough to value them as members of their race and possibly fellow citizens? But now we skip ahead to Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, when my, my, my own beloved friends writing in the Senate said, the question was whether that offspring in the womb is a human being. There is no legal answer to that question, he said. It must be a value judgment. Well, I submit to you that if it makes no sense to submit the human standing of the child to the value judgments in the separate states, you fact, the black man, it makes as little sense to invite people to offer their value judgments on when human life begins. What we say when the child in the womb begins to swallow and squint at nine to 10 weeks, when the fetal heartbeat can be picked up with the Doppler devices at six weeks. But none of these things marks, you know, the beginning of human life. They simply mark different phases in the development of the same small being powering and integrating its own growth. On this point, the findings in the textbooks on embryology and obstetric gynecology have been uniform and unanimous for many years. And from that body of data, those lawyers from Texas and Roe versus Wade extracted these points for the court that that offspring in the womb has never been anything other than human from its very first moments, that it receives its nourishment from its mother, but it has never been merely a part of the mother's body. At that moment, the court could have made the kind of judgment that courts and judges routinely make. Judges are called upon every turn to say whether the police are justified 
in looking into the driveway of a private home in search of a vehicle, uh, whether the, 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 the law is justified or unjustified in ordering the search of body cavities, looking for illegal drugs. The justices in Roe could have said, as they've said in many other cases, that they've reviewed the impressive data and the reasoning, and they're compelled to conclude that the laws in Texas were amply justified, in this case, justified in casting their protections over those small human beings in wombs. But instead of making that familiar move to explain the judgment, the dissenters in Roe did nothing, did nothing to draw upon that rich body of material. They retreated to a theory, a theory about the guidelines confining judges. Now, my own project in natural law, we followed Thomas Reed the Scott philosopher read by James Wilson, John Adams, and others, in finding the ground of the natural law in those maxims of common sense that the ordinary man has to know before he begins trafficking in theories. The ordinary man would know what James Wilson and Immanuel Kant took as the very first principle of moral and legal judgment, that it makes no sense to cast judgments of praise and blame on people, or hold them responsible for acts they were powerless to effect. Now, I'd submit that an ordinary man, unburdened with theories, would hear that Roe versus Wade was giving us a momentous case on abortion, and in the most natural way, he would be interested in knowing just how it came out, just what it is that the court finally had to say about the rightness or wrongness of abortion. But instead of explaining the ground of that common sense judgment, the dissenters invoked a theory, a theory about judges running beyond their proper lines of authority. It was a theory that the common man would not readily understand, and in truth, it has not been amply, amply explained even in our own day. What we'd hear day in and day out is that a right to abortion was nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. And so federal judges were not in a position to proclaim new rights springing from the Constitution. But as Jerry Bradley has pointed out, the Congress had ample reason to deal, make, to make abortion the business of the federal government in dealing with abortion in military hospitals, in military and diplomatic outposts abroad, in the territories, and in the District of Columbia. There was nothing about the Constitution about marriage in 1967 when the court struck down the laws barring marriage across racial lines. Yet no conservative has been willing to challenge that decision and ask, where is the right to marry in the Constitution? But we heard again from Justice Kavanaugh that abortion was never mentioned in the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution, he said, was neutral on abortion. So the people in the separate states were free to vote abortion up or down. It apparently slipped the notice of Justice Kavanaugh that he was offering a chilling echo of Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas in their famous debates in 1858, where Douglas said that the, we could avoid this vexing, divisive issue of slavery simply by leaving it to the settlers in the territories to vote slavery up or down as it suited their interests. So he said, so in Maine, we have laws on oysters. In Indiana, we have laws on cranberries. And some people use slave labor. For Lincoln, this was the degradation of the democratic dogma to say that the regime is all process and no substance, that we're free to virtually choose anything to do slavery or genocide through this system. 
as long as we did it with all the trappings of legality through the vote of the majority. But we can ask, is, Amer is the American regime and the Constitution really neutral on the matter of genocide? Does the regime of law not begin by taking seriously the difference between innocence and guilt? That we visit punishment on people only when we found them deserving, guilty and deserving of punishment? The natural right to life never meant a right to life everlasting. It meant, rather, the right of an ordinary person, innocent of wrongdoing, to be protected from a lawless, unjustified assault on his life. Now, how could anyone understand those moral premises underlying this regime and think that those deep principles could possibly be neutral or indifferent on the question of whether the Constitution would license a regime of killing small, innocent human beings. And so the conservatives trumpeted on, on this, their side was the matter of sending, sending the issue back to the states. But now the blue states have been transformed. The court in Roe did not merely create a new right, it changed the culture. It changed abortion from a thing abhorred, condemned, discouraged, forbidden, into something approved, celebrated, promoted. The culture of abortion will be flourishing in the blue states, but the conservatives, schooled by Justice Holmes, thought that they were doing the purely legal work when they overruled Roe. For in the style of Holmes, they sought to mask themselves and screen out of the law, as he, sa as he said, all words of moral significance, in this case, the moral words that surrounded the taking of life in abortion. And so, 49 years later, the conservatives would still not draw on that rich material about the human standing of the child in the womb, for it was ever clearer now that the life of the child in the womb did not supply the ground of their constitutional argument or the object of their official concern. But that child would have supplied the ground of the judgment if the conservatives in Roe had taken the simple path of arguing that those laws in Texas were justified in casting their protections on those small human beings, and those simple words spoken now would supply the predicate on which the Congress and the federal courts could act under the 14th Amendment when the protections of the law are being withdrawn from a whole class of human beings in the blue states. And just in the way that the courts and the Congress came to understand their authority to act when the protections of the law were withdrawn from black people in the South through the 50s and 60s. The telling mark here is that of Justice Kavanaugh writing that many pro-life advocates forcefully argue, argue that a fetus is a human life, as though there's no, been no long-settled empirical truth on this matter found in all the textbooks on embryology. In other words, in holding back from a moral judgment, the judges must affect not to know the plainest objective truth on the human standing of that child. It's a judgment to be reserved to others, which is to say, conservative jurisprudence takes its beginning point in this matter by its willingness to live affably with a radical falsehood. And the concurrence by Kavanaugh is the confirmation that by design, even the opinion written by our beloved Sam Alito, 
left the human standing of the child in the womb to the value judgments reached in the, in the separate states. And so the child in the womb is still referred to as a merely potential being, a term that makes no sense, as he knows. We have then a crisis of the house divided again. And as in that earlier crisis, the balance is unsteady. And the dynamic is likely to move one way or the other. And here the landscape may now be tilted, as I think it is, against my side. For the culture of abortion promises to flourish in the blue states. But we may find, as a possibility, that it may be never out of season to bring forth that most disarming of all bills, the Born Alive Instant Protection Act, both in Congress and the blue states, to protect the child who survives the abortion. We did it before. We can bring it again back. And who knows, with that modest move, we may be able to crack a small fissure in that wall of resistance to pro-life legislation, even in the blue states. But the court in Dobbs deliberately refused to say anything about the rights and wrongs of abortion. That was part of the plan. And so it did nothing to foreclose the Democrats, fueled by a new anger, from using those levers of federal power to sweep away those lingering barriers to the promotion of abortion as a public good. Friends cite the Hyde Amendment. But Henry Hyde, our friend Henry Hyde, as a Republican, introduced that amendment in 1976, when there were pro-life Democrats still in Congress. Those measures have now a faint chance of surviving when a, an energized, progressive party managed to come into firm control of the Congress and the White House. A dear friend of mine in the neural sciences once told me that a light held to the retina yields a vast amount of information about the state of the organism. Dobbs was the light held to the retina. And what it revealed are the grave differences running deep among the conservatives themselves. The conservatives, with their insistence on positivism as a source of all rights, their willingness to have the abortion simply voted up or down, they've given us a jurisprudence that actually prides itself on steering around the questions of moral substance in these cases, except for one. There is one moral claim that conservative jurisprudence does make, that it is vindicating the right of our people, not our judges, to govern ourselves. But that right depends, though, on that proposition proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence on the rightful governance of human beings. And yet, we've been persistently told, have we not, that that moral principle has no standing in the Constitution because it has never been enacted in the positive law. No, but as John Locke alerted us, that principle had to be there, as he said, antecedent to the positive law in order to tell us just who had the rightful authority to make that positive law in the first place. So detached from that principle, on what ground does the majority rule? Holmes said it, and Justice Scalia agreed, it rules because it has the brute power to overpower the minority, or as Rousseau put it, might makes right, a premise that waives any claim at all to the moral ground of the law. I have on the court three men I regard as friends. I think they found themselves compelled to move in the grooves marked by cons for conservative prudence over the last 40 years. And those lines have led us now into a terminal positivism that cannot supply the ground of its own justification. So here lies 
conservative jurisprudence. The task is handed over now to a political class too defensive and too cow to argue that there's something beckoning and deeply good about the prospect of protecting babies from being dismembered in their mother's room. Instead, what the conservatives tell us is, don't worry, people care more about inflation. With the judges holding back, with a political class distracted and dazed, there now falls to the rest of us a heavier burden argument and steady work.